Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, Episode 5. This is Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. And today, continuing the trend of talking about the mechanical models of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, we are going to talk about finishing mechanics. So Matt, this is probably going to be something that you're most fluent with. I know that this is terminology that you guys use at Island Top Team. Particularly, you divide this into two general families. You've got breaking mechanics for joint locks and choking mechanics for chokes. That's right. Yeah. So it's it's really important to uh, distinguish these different types of mechanics when we're essentially looking to finish submissions. Uh, let's start with breaking mechanics. So breaking mechanics meaning... You know, the overall goal is to break a part of your opponent's body, right? Uh, breaking mechanics can be, uh, can, they can be linear or they can be rotational or they can be both sometimes, right? So an arm bar would obviously be like a hyperextension. So that's a, a linear joint lock. And then there's going to be a rotational joint lock such as a Kimura. And then in certain cases, you're going to mix the two. So Maybe you're doing a, uh, a knee bar that has a little bit of a twist on it, or maybe you're doing a arm bar where you're controlling the wrist and you're torquing the wrist in a certain way, you know, d- depending on what you're trying to achieve. Um, if you can talk about these two different uh, ideas of, uh, you know, br- break it down into joint locks and chokes, you're going to have um, a little bit more of an understanding of some of the finishing details. Got it. Got it. So up until this point, Everything we've talked about, whether it be alignments or the core mechanics of jiu-jitsu, uh, everything we've talked about really talks about positional control and how to establish proper positional dominance. What we're talking about now is the last step. So you've completely broken your opponent's alignment. You're, you have full control over them. It's time to apply a submission. Submissions generally fall into these two categories. Now, there are weird, exotic, like compression chokes you can do that attack like the lungs and stuff. But generally speaking, high percentage chokes come or high percentage submissions come down to uh, blood chokes or joint locks on the, the arms of the legs. Now, everyone knows different ways to do these different submissions, but maybe what we can talk about is this being a mental models podcast. What are some of the commonalities between them, Matt? So if we're talking about like chokes, for example, what are some of the things that all chokes have in common that people should be aware of? Well, when you're, when you're choking someone, you know, you can, there's several different ways to finish uh, chokes. They can generally attack the uh, arteries, in which case your opponent is going to be uh, rendered unconscious, or you could, you know, essentially combine a breaking choking mechanic like a neck crank or a jaw crush, which is not necessarily going to make your opponent unconscious, but it will result in damage uh, to their skeleton. And you can also apply uh, chokes to their trachea, so to their windpipe, which 
and in my experience, it's pretty impossible to not tap to just because it is so painful and you will die. You so. know, <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up because when I was coming up in jujitsu, I was always told you got to make it a blood choke. You know, you got to, if, if you're doing a choke, you got to make sure it's a blood choke. If you're doing a, uh, an air pipe choke, you're doing it wrong. In fact, I remember back when I started training, uh, you know, this was such a taboo that I remember one time I got a, a choke on someone. And then afterwards he kind of like said, you know, that was an air choke as if it like wasn't legit that he submitted because of it. Yeah. Um, and th- this is kind of a, one of those common weird jujitsu dogma things that blo- it's got to be a blood choke if it's going to be a legitimate choke. Um, from my experience as well, air chokes are every bit as legitimate as blood chokes for a variety of reasons. But one of them being that if you really do choke someone's trachea properly, you're probably going to stimulate the gag reflex. That's going to cause a brush of blood to the head, which is going to have effectively the same effect as a blood choke. Like I am, I am pretty sure that I could choke someone unconscious with like an air, an air choke guillotine if I needed to, you know, I do not believe that those are inherently any weaker than blood chokes. Matt, where do you come down on this? I mean, I, I, I totally agree in terms of their effectiveness. Uh, I, I think that, uh, and I've heard that too, like, oh, well, that was an air choke. You know, that wasn't as clean. You're right about that. It's not clean, right? If, if, if if your training partner is someone that, uh, you don't necessarily, we don't want to hurt our training partners. So we might, we might strive to get the cleanest, uh, most quote unquote pain-free chokes as possible, but when it comes down to it, we're, we're practicing a martial art where we are trying to uh, incapacitate our opponent. So there's really nothing dirty or wrong about uh, an air choke. Now, if you're going to if you're going to neck crank your uh, your training partner <laughs> um, or jaw crush your training partner, I, I mean, you know, I like to think that I have a school that fosters this being uh, uh, if you're going to do something like this, that it's applied safely and that there's an understanding that we are going to tap if there's danger. But um, it, I, I don't think it's as tasteful. Now, in terms of a jaw crush, you know, that there's really, if I, if I can get my arm over a training partner's head, I'm going to slowly apply that jaw crush because I think that that is, um, that's fair. I think that that's fair enough that it, it is obviously effective. There's no denying that eventually you can break someone's jaw. Uh, in terms of a neck crank, I generally steer clear of neck cranks just because necks are so valuable to us. And uh, for longevity reasons, I don't want to hurt my training partners. But that being said, in a tournament, if it's allowed, I will totally neck crank someone and I will totally twister someone in training as well. So as long as things are applied safely uh, and respectfully, there shouldn't be an issue with these types of finishes. And as long as they're effective and they get a tap, uh, that's really what we're going for here. Yeah. I think the, the takeaway there is if it is a controlled submission where the guy doing it is gently applying pressure in a, in a friendly way, as crazy as that sounds, but you, you know, the difference when you feel it, right? Like I can have you in an air choke and I can be applying it in a friendly way where it's like, look, I, you and I, you and I both know that we're training here. Yeah. It's an air choke, but it's, there is that friendly factor to it. That's different from the guy who is like, you know, trying to like jaw crush you just because he's got to get that win during the training session. Um, and I I would also add that. So yeah, to, to elaborate on that thought, if, 
if you're training with someone, you want to, you know, you need to look out for your partner's longevity. That is super duper important. Stuff like neck cranks, for example, I'm not denying the effectiveness of these techniques, but they really don't have much place in training. You know, if you want to practice that stuff, do it with, do it with a willing partner who knows you're doing it and do it in a catch and release fashion rather than really applying pressure. The neck is not something that you want to mess around with. Um, you've got to be wary that certain types of um, certain types of attacks can damage your opponent in ways that can last for the rest of their lives. And if you're going to use those kind of techniques, it needs to be consensual and it needs to be safe, right? You don't want to be doing something like that on someone who isn't expecting it, doesn't even know it's a submission, isn't aware of the long-term damage. So just be cognizant of that. Um, I, I would also add on top of this that, you know, in training, there is no shame to tapping from pressure or tapping from unpleasantness. Sometimes this is a good idea. Um, in, in competition, that's probably a different story. Um, or in a real fight, that would be a different story. But in training, you know, I per if, if someone is really, really hell-bent on shoulder crushing me and, you know, I don't want to go into work the next day with like gee burns all over my face, I will absolutely tap from pressure like that. And I will use that as a learning experience to make sure that, that in the future... I just never get into such a situation. I, I think that the mentality of, um, you know, surviving at all costs and toughing it out when you're training, really, you're you're better off focusing on learning and on learning how to avoid these situations in the first place, rather than trying to, you know, just spaz out of these bad positions and possibly causing long term damage to yourself. Right. And and when we talk about chokes, there's a few things that kind of uh, fall in line with with pretty much all different types of chokes. So one rule that I like to use when I'm teaching chokes is you basically want to um, get everything in position before you apply the actual horsepower portion of the submission. So, you know, whatever choke I have, let's say I have a, I'm going for a head and arm choke. And I just, as soon as I isolate your head and arm, I start squeezing right away and I start going for the finish right away. When you do this, you deny yourself the ability to, um, essentially get the proper angle and all the little details that you want to get. I, I call them the minor, minor finishing details. And then there's the major finishing details, which would be the, the you know, you're starting to squeeze. Now that's the last step you do. Mm -hmm. The minor finishing details is getting everything into place. Uh, your digging mechanics. If you're talking about leg locks, which we'll get into later. Um, you know, if you start squeezing too early, you can never go back and make the adjustments necessary to making that submission uh, a lot more efficient. So it's really important that you you don't rush through your finishes. You always want to set up your chokes in such a way that not only do you, uh, you know, when you get in your position, you want to make sure that you deny your opponent the ability to escape. How do you do that? Most of the time it's going to be by breaking their alignment. So if it's a head and arm, you know, I want to deny them the ability of getting their arm free of the head and arm submission. Ideally, I would like to have them pinned in such a way that, they can't use their posture to escape and their head is in a box because I'm, I'm doing such a good job of keeping my head connected to theirs. Uh, my grips are tight and I spent the time needed pushing the arm into the proper position. And I have the, uh, I have the corrective, I have the correct placement. Uh, if I, if I decide I want to rush through something and just use pure strength, um, as most practitioners know, that is not the most efficient way to do things. Yeah. From my experience too, uh, when you try to do that, first of all, you stand a good chance of not getting the submission. I mean, the perfect example is the arm triangle. It is possible to try to just like squeeze the life out of a guy with an arm triangle before you've done it perfectly. But from my experience, first of all, it reduces your chance of successfully completing the finish. 
And second of all, you run the risk then of gassing yourself out, right? If you squeeze so hard that you basically can no longer use your arms, when your opponent gets out of that arm triangle, now you're in a big world of hurt, right? So that's the kind of situation that you want to avoid. Tying on to your concept, your discussion earlier about alignment, the thing that I always think when, with submissions is I, I highly encourage that you don't think of positions and submissions as two separate things. They're really the same. All a submission is, is it is a a particular type of position where your opponent's posture and structure are so compromised that they basically have to give up the fight. That's all it is, right? If you try and like dive onto submissions, you're missing the opportunity to further break down your opponent's posture and structure. And, and this is a very subtle thing, but it's actually a very key difference. Guys who are good at jujitsu, they don't think, I'm going for the submission now. I'm going for the submission now. What they think is, I'm going to take away a bit of your structure, posture, or base, and then I'm going to do it again, and then I'm going to do it again, and I'm going to keep doing it like a boa constrictor until eventually it just so happens that you have to tap out. That's the way I think of things, right? Like when I'm going, when I'm advancing position or trying to isolate a limb and secure a, a submission, it's not about submitting the guy. It's about just progressively breaking his alignment a little bit more until his alignment is broken to the point where it's actually damaging to him. And at this point now, he has to give up the fight. Yeah. And these, we've all been, we've been speaking right now in terms of like no gi submission. So like head and arm, right? Well, what if it's a gi submission? Uh, we're, we're obviously going to be, let's take the bow and arrow, for example. Um, of course that is going to be, you're going to be driving the bus with a grip wrapped around your opponent's opposite side collar. Right. And then if you, let's say you get into that situation and before you, uh, you know, you've gotten under the chin, but you don't really have everything tight where it needs to be. And you just start pulling on that collar, uh, good chance if you don't have rotational control of your opponent they're going to spin out right or they're going to they're going to get their head free because you didn't take the time to break their alignment and actually uh set up control so whenever whatever type of submission we're trying to apply whether it's a joint lock uh, or a choke we want to be able to have control that leads to submission right and 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 more specifically breaking alignment causing control that leads to submission so if i have you in a head and arm and it doesn't work and you escape, I want to have backup plans that maintain a strong position. I don't want to have a game where I'm trying to catch submissions and if I don't get that submission, it's an all or nothing thing and now my opponent has scrambled out and is possibly going to my back. That would be the wrong thing to do. Yeah, you want to avoid what I I think of as submission tunnel vision where it's like I see see the possibility of an armbar. And one way or another, I'm going to get this armbar. And you're so focused on trying to lock up the armbar that you're ignoring opportunities to further break alignment, or you're ignoring opportunities to get other perfectly good submissions that are right there, right? This is a very common mistake that people make right up to the high levels where they get, and I catch myself making this mistake all the time, where like a horse with blinders, I'm so focused on getting a particular submission that I'm giving up the opportunity to advance position and break alignment along the way, or even finish the fight in an equally effective form. Yeah. And, right? and, and I have, I have guys that come to me, they say, Oh, I want to get a better rear naked choke. How? I, whenever I go for the rear naked choke, like I, I can't finish. I'm, I'm thinking, like, who cares? As long as you can advance the position, who cares, right? This this is true, but but I, I also say, okay, show me what you're doing. They they take the seatbelt and then they break their own seatbelt, and then the one arm tries to tra- strangle me. Mm-hmm. So the issue with this is that they're not focusing on rotational control uh, by way of a lever 
So one, one of my favorite ways to set up a, a rear naked choke is I take control of um, the arm with the motorcycle grip. So now I've access control of my opponent's arm. I know that they're not going to be able to turn in a particular way. Now I can use my other free arm to either help me trap their remaining arm or go for my choke right away. I can also incorporate one of my legs uh, in a crucifix type back control position so that I've taken out both of their arms of the equation. So uh, rather than just trying to catch a rear naked choke, I'm applying it with control. Trying, I'm trying to get rotational control by isolating levers. And this is essentially cornering my opponent into a situation where, um, you know, the control is so great that they can't spin out. It's, um, it's, it's also very important to think about, like I mentioned with the arm triangle, and of course with the rear naked choke is no exception, that we want to have wedges around our opponent's head. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever we're trying to control someone and choke them, When I say break their alignment, I mean like really break their posture in such a way that bridging escaping is not going to be available. They can't get their back to the mat because your head is blocking them. And there is, there's always uh, an obstruction that prevents their head and their spinal column from escaping to the side that they want. So this is a very important uh, way to think about controlling someone because this will give us way better control when we look for submissions when normally uh, if we're not considering these things they might just spin out and then we're stuck on the bottom yeah th- this is a, actually a great example the rear naked choke specifically <coughs> is a great example of why alignment and positional control are so important when you're trying to apply a submission uh, so many people when they see someone's back, they get real excited. Uh, I, I have this happen a lot where, you know, if I'm, if I'm playing turtle, someone will, they, especially um, people who are less experienced, they get real excited because they think there's the guy's back. I can get a rear naked choke and they'll dive on you. Right. And submission diving is always a bad idea because it means that you're trying to get a submission without securing the position and without securing, uh, without having proper alignment and without breaking your opponent's alignment. So a lot of the time, you know, someone will try and jump on my back and throw on a rear naked choke. They don't have their hooks. They don't have proper chest, uh, chest to back control on me and there's no threat at all. So I get out, you know, I get out. It's not a problem. Um, whereas what's much more intimidating is someone who takes the time to properly secure the back position, defeat my arms, uh, control my legs. And then ultimately if I can't, if I cannot use my arms and legs, it's only a matter of time before I'm going to get choked. Right. That's a far more way to to, to threaten me a far greater way to threaten me than to just try to jump on my back and hope that you get to choke. Yeah. I like the term you use submission diving. Mm-hmm. Um, this was when, when we're talking about leg locks and yeah, things like diving that. for leg locks, diving for leg locks. So, so, you know, having that style of, of where you're going to catch submissions, um, you know, you might submit some guys and you, you might be one of the best guys in the gym if this is your style. The only problem is, is when you go against guys at a higher level, you're, you will rarely catch them because they're so aware um, and your control is not where it needs to be. It's the control that leads to submission. Yeah. Uh, not, we're not catching submissions, okay? So, so if you have a catch style game, and, and not to shit on catch wrestling, but if you have a game where you're catching submissions and you're catching your partners with leg locks and chokes, um, you might be creating some false positives. And that, that's, a, that's a huge thing where I think when people learn leg locks, it really opens their mind to the idea of the leg lock game being a controlling game leading to submission rather than catching heel hooks and catching leg locks. Yeah, I like, I like the thought of, 
um, diving for submissions as being something to be aware of as something that you shouldn't do. Because when you're diving for submissions, it basically means you're abandoning any pretense of having control and you're rolling the dice. You're hoping to get that submission. And as you mentioned, the problem with diving for submissions is a lot of people can trick themselves into thinking it works. But as you mentioned, against high-level guys, they're usually not going to be fooled by this. And even your training partners, you'll find that a lot, a lot of these techniques, they work once or twice, but after a while, as soon as your opponent knows that they, that you're going to do this, or they're aware of the defense, they just stop working. Um, I've sparred with guys who do this. They, um, they, they die for moves and yeah, they might catch me once, but they're not going to catch me ever again with that. And that's, that's a limitation to that kind of technique. And it's a reason why control is so superior to just basically relying on what, what is effectively luck. I think one problem is that when you look at a high-level grappler, they move so fast that it looks like they're diving for submissions. Yeah, so right. if you're not experienced, you look at these guys and you think, well, they're diving for submissions. Why can't I? But once you actually watch the video in slow-mo and break it down, you realize there's a lot of micro positions they're transferring through and there's a lot of control happening all the way through. Yes, their body is moving and it might be moving quickly, but they're never giving up control for a percentage chance at a submission. Exactly right. Like if you go in for a sub, uh, no matter if it's a choke or a, or a joint lock, you always want to have an escape plan. Uh, and I don't mean an escape plan like, you know, how am I going to get back to my feet? But more escape escape plan as um, if, if, if the submission fails, you're still in a dominant position. Mm-hmm. You still have a dominant angle and you can attack. So if, if my rear naked choke doesn't work, I still want to be on the back when it's over or at least have a Kimura control or some, some strong form of control that will lead me into other opportunities. Yeah. What, what you've just described there actually is something that I've personally called committed techniques. And uh, basically this is a mental model I use to help me make decisions on the fly. And the idea being that let's say I have a goal in jujitsu. Like let's say that I want to, I don't know, maybe I want to submit you, right? Uh, let's say I'm in side control and I feel like I've got pretty good positional control. I feel like I've broken your alignment it's time to go for a submission. If I have a handful of different options, I will always prefer the option that is most likely to allow me to maintain the position or even advance the position versus the option where I run the risk of losing it. Um, A a good example is like, let's say that you're kind of like turtled up and I have the option to do a head and arm choke on you. And I can choose between an anaconda or a darce choke. I will almost all now, now granted, actually disclaimer, I'm bad at both of these jokes, but, <laughs> but I will personally almost always prefer the Darce choke because with the Darce choke, even if the choke fails, there's a good possibility that I'm going to wind up in a better position. Um, you know, if, if the Darce choke fails, I can still bulldoze the guy over. And now instead of being on his turtle, I might be in side control on top. Whereas with the anaconda choke, because you have to do that gator roll, if it fails, I may have lost that position. Yeah, you give up your own base going yeah. for the gator roll. Yeah. So, um, sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I refer to this as the like the principle or the model of committed techniques. Given multiple options, I will prefer, uh, like assuming the result is equally good, personally, I will prefer the option that results in me being able to keep or improve my position versus one where I could lose it. Yeah, and another example, we're talking about the Darce choke. If you've ever tried to Darce choke someone with good posture, they're going to be running around like a raging bull and sitting out and moving around. The way to to slow them down and immobilize them is by breaking posture. So that involves, you know, 
collapsing their head inward, breaking, bending their spine by uh, bending their neck in. And also, of course, you got to shoot your arm through, which is going to cross their arm, uh, make their arm cross the center line, causing the head and arm choke. So so when you break the posture, that's where you're going to actually control a, a strong opponent. And that way you're not trying to darf someone who's running around and, and making your life really hard. Yeah, that's not that's a good example of a, I mean, it's not as visibly obvious, but it's kind of a form of submission diving where it's like you grab that head and arm and you just squeeze like crazy. But the, the real advantage to the Darce choke is it's such a powerful position to break the guy's posture on the bottom. And uh, that is really the strength of that move. Even if you fail at the submission, you've gained something worthwhile. It's worth doing even if you don't think you can get the submission. That's right. And and all chokes, whether it's a rear naked choke or a triangle choke, or a bow and arrow choke. Um, the more that I study jujitsu and 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 hone my chokes, the more that I realize that choking is not a squeezing. Uh, it's not the squeezing that finishes chokes. Once everything is set in place, the squeezing helps, no doubt, and you can get away with a lot by squeezing hard. But breaking someone's posture into the choke uh, is really what causes a lot of chokes. So if I'm in a if I have you in a rear naked choke and my arm is fully sunk, yes, I could finish you by squeezing you, but by breaking your posture, pushing your head forward using my either my hand or my own head, my face, uh, creating a frame on the back of your head and pushing you, your, your chin down into the choke mm-hmm. is going to amplify the choke uh, a lot. So always think about how are you breaking alignment when you're choking? Not necessarily, how can I get the tightest squeeze? You know, this is actually something that I remember seeing in one of Rob's videos, which I thought was a very helpful way to describe um, choking mechanics. So what he said is that if you want to apply a blood choke, you you basically need three wedges. You need a wedge on one carotid artery, you need a wedge on the other carotid artery, and you need a wedge behind the neck that pushes down. Like he basically said, think of it like a tr- like there's a triangle around your opponent's head, and like the, the bottom point of the triangle is under the chin. Your goal is to have wedges on all of those sides, and then from the top, you want to push down to make that triangle smaller. So basically, you're creating compression on both of the carotid arteries while additionally breaking posture by pushing down on the head. And if you think about it, every single successful blood choke has this in common, right? Whether And even some air chokes have this in common to some extent where you're applying pressure laterally on both carotid arteries while, and most importantly, you're pushing down from the top. So if you're ever having trouble finishing really any type of blood choke, this is a good thing to think about and to, to use to kind of analyze and troubleshoot your technique. Yeah. And, and, it's so easy when you're learning chokes to just start squeezing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and every beginner is going to do this. And it really takes a good coach to identify this and to walk them through the the proper way to do it. But, you know, if you're going red in the face trying to finish a choke, uh, your, your mechanics need work. And that is always something to be critical of and to be mindful of and to be uh, to, to self-reflect when you're doing submissions. Am I using too much strength here? Mm-hmm. If you are things probably could be, uh, your dig mechanics could be better. And of course, you could be doing a better job of breaking your opponent's alignment. Yeah, I would actually say that this goes beyond just applying submissions. But in general, in jujitsu, if you feel your, you you need to develop the mental awareness of what your body is doing, because it is the body's natural response to tighten up and tense up and to try to use strength. And you need to develop the mental awareness 
awareness of when your body is doing this. Because when your body starts tensing up and you're using your strength, it's a signal that you're not doing technique properly. So I try to be aware of this. And if I ever get myself into a position where I realize, man, I'm squeezing really hard here, whether it's a submission or not, it's a way for me to reflect and understand that there's a better way to do what I'm doing and I'm not being efficient. So it's something that I suggest everyone really practice, learning to have that awareness of what your own body is doing and when it's tensing. Awesome. So should we discuss maybe some joint locks now? Yeah, absolutely. I think that covers choking mechanics in pretty good depth. So let's talk about joint locks, Matt. How, what are the principles for joint locks and how do they differ from like um, air chokes and blood chokes? Well, maybe I, I just want to cover something. Maybe I misspoke earlier. I said there was three kinds of uh, uh, joint locks. I actually, uh, I left one out. So, so we have the linear joint locks, such as an arm bar. We have rotational joint locks, such as a Kimura. There's also a compression joint lock. So I forgot about this, like uh, say a bicep slicer or a uh, calf slicer. Um, or the or, ultimate submission, the Boston Crab. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The shark or the sharpshooter. Um, I believe the sharpshooter is actually a rotational lock, but let's not and, and I believe Ric Flair actually invented the inside Senkaku, uh, although he was very bad at keeping the position because he would always get reversed. By the way, side note, if anyone out there has figured out how to successfully apply a sharpshooter in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, please let me know because I have been trying to figure out a way to do that for years. Yeah. Continue. <laughs> okay. So, and, and of course, there's the uh, like a hybrid joint lock where you combine uh, two or more of those types of, mm-hmm. of of joint locks. So it's the same sort of thing. Um, and we, we already discussed lever based control. So it's important to know, first of all, how to manipulate levers. If we're talking about a linear joint lock, such as an arm bar, we need to, uh, establish a proper fulcrum point and we need to have control of the end of the lever and a, we- a strong set of wedges on the other end of the lever. So whether it's going to be, uh, an arm bar where we have a strong, strong wedges on the shoulder, and we have a nice fulcrum point underneath the elbow and control on the end of the lever. Or if it's a, a leg lock where we've established a wedge on the hip, a wedge behind the knee, and then control of the end of the free uh, on the end of the leg that we're attacking. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna need those elements to create powerful breaking pressure. Uh, of course, there's so many. There's so many details to go through, right? But we'll we'll try and sort of take them as they come. Then there's going to be rotational control. So when we're talking about something like the Kimura or the toehold, what we're looking to generate is something called the ratchet effect. And the ratchet effect is taking a limb and essentially bending it into a 90 degree position uh, where we gain a lot more rotational leverage. Uh, an example of this would be, you know, if you if you have a bunch of screws to screw home and you only have a screwdriver, you're going to be there putting in tons of work with your wrist. Uh, it's not going to be very efficient and you're going to want to bang your head on the wall. Now, if you have a uh, ratchet, something that is uh, like a, a lever that is sticking out that you can now access, uh, it's going to go by much faster and more efficient. So this is just the exact same concept. When I have a ratchet control over someone's shoulder, I'm going to have a lot more power when it comes to uh, finishing mechanics, I don't want to try and Kimura someone with a straight arm. It just, it doesn't happen, right? It turns, it turns into an arm bar or something else. Which is in itself a legitimate technique, but it, there's just a different way to finish something like that. Right. Like I want to, I want to maximize the torque that I have on the joint when I'm doing the rotational submissions. So uh, that is going to be how I'm going to gain that. Of course, getting, getting an actual ratchet control means that my, if it's effective and I have essentially a two-on-one, my opponent shouldn't be able to break that control and I'm going to have a lot of finishing power. 
Got it. So for for the more linear submissions like arm bars, you mentioned that it's critical to apply wedges. Can you? I, we I know we talked about this in earlier episodes, but can you maybe elaborate a bit on why those wedges are so important and where your best position to put them? Right. So I mean, like, you know, the, one of the more common uh, escapes we learn from the armbar from as a beginner is the hitchhiker escape. So why does the hitchhiker escape work? When we're in the armbar and we try and do the hitchhiker escape, we turn away from our opponent. If, if you could do this right now by just putting your arm out, imagining you're in an armbar and then looking away from the armbar, what happens is your shoulder elevates. So when your shoulder elevates, it actually allows the pressure that would be inside the fulcrum, which is at the elbow, the bridging portion, uh, the pressure is going to bleed from the elbow into the shoulder, which now has mobility. So because the shoulder has mobility, not only can my opponent spin and deke their head underneath the space created by the elevated shoulder, but the pressure that would have otherwise gone into the elbow now bleeds into the shoulder. So this is really, this is a big problem when it comes to trying to armbar someone. Uh, if we do this and they're allowed to hitchhiker, you're going to get your guard pass unless you act really quick. So it's important to establish a wedge, meaning we're immobilizing the shoulder so that there can't be space underneath the shoulder. If the shoulder, if there's space under the shoulder, uh, the pressure won't be isolated within the fulcrum point and my opponent will be able to spin out and there will be space underneath for their head to go as they come up and try to pass my guard. Got it. So if there's something I'm really getting out of the last few conversations we've had on these topics, it's that, and it's that levers are so critical for establishing positional dominance, right? When you're, when you're advancing your position, you're basically, it's basically all a lever battle, really. Finishes are all about wedges, it sounds like. Like, regardless of whether you're doing a choke or you're doing a joint lock, it's ultimately the wedges that dictate the power. I, I mean, with to some extent, lever control as well, but ultimately it's the wedges that are going to determine whether your submission works or it doesn't. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're just imagine any submission, try to apply any submission on someone who can move. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen. It's not, it's really not possible. You really need to isolate and immobilize if you're going to get finishing mechanics. And that really applies for almost any submission I can think of. I can't like, think of any submission that even, does not require this principle. Even a flying arm bar, a submission that's in motion, it only works because you have correct wedges around your opponent. So if you yeah. don't have those wedges... You're, it's there's, hilarious there's, if you don't have those wedges. <laughs> you, you land right on your head and, and that's why people don't do flying arm bars. Um, or, or, you know, mo- a lot of people don't do flying yeah, arm Or bars. they do them once. <laughs> yeah, and then they get concussed. Um, yeah, so, so of course, linear linear submissions, you're just hyperextending and, uh, and looking to create wedges on the end of the lever. And one thing that um, really helped me, like a detail that Rob showed me that was just wicked, is when you're doing the arm bar, I didn't even think of this, okay? Like, when you pull the, the end of the lever down, so, you know, you've got the double wrist control and, and your, your legs are tight, everything's looking good. Um, instead of trying to pull the arm open and pull the hand down into your chest, what he showed me is actually pull the hand towards your head. So mm-hmm. you pull the arm away from the body. And uh, if, you, if you can imagine what this does, it basically takes the slack out of the joint. And this is huge. Uh, you can You can get so much pressure thinking about taking the slack out of the joint by pulling the hand away from the body. And this is the exact same thing that we do with a lot of our heel hooks. Yeah, it's, you know, this actually ties into the um, the concept of limb coiling, which we talked about earlier. If you allow your opponent to 
position their limbs and in this, you know, basically retract their knees and their elbows and their neck, it gets a lot harder to submit them. And if you're just trying to yank on the guy's arm, you're going to have problems breaking their posture and their structure. What you really want to do is you want to isolate those limbs. You want to extract that limb from the body. Um, so if, yeah, to your point, if you're trying to like pull on the guy's arm while it's still, while that elbow is still tucked in as close to the body, you're very unlikely to get that submission. Um, what I found has been very helpful in dealing with arm bars, for example, if my opponent is clasping his hands together really tight, is adding a degree of rotational control. So rather than trying to pull straight back, I actually fall onto my side towards his head while grabbing onto his arm tightly. And the important pointer is I don't grab onto his arm and pull it. I connect, I pull myself very closely and tightly around his arm so that my chest is basically on his arm. And then I'm pulling with my core, not with my arms. The the only purpose of my arms is to glue his arm to my core. It's my core that's doing the pulling and not my arms. And same with the finishing mechanics, just like you say, use your body. I mean, when you're bridging, of course you have to have strong wedges, but it's your, it's your hips and your, your essentially your posture that's creating the submission. Uh, And like you said, your arms are just controlling the lever, um, not necessarily doing the majority you would never be in an arm bar lying back and there's a giant space between your body and your opponent's hand and then you're making a big movement pulling the hand towards your body you would sit up connect and then use your your body to to finish and of course you know it is especially things like knee bars you know if you think about knee bars you're trying to finish a knee bar we think so much about how we have to lean back right we we grab the end of the leg and we lean back it has so much more to do with the what your legs are doing on your opponent's uh hip and and thigh that is going to dictate how strong your knee bar is and whether or not they're going to be able to move because when you when you try and just lean back that movement of leaning back is is what uh, Danaher calls the follow through room, right? Mm-hmm. And and that should be the last thing you do, yeah. really. That's it's the exclamation point at the end of the sentence. Yeah. You should already have enough finishing power by that point. That's right. Those are those are your uh, your major di- finishing mechanics, right? The minor finishing mechanics are, you know, how did you get there? How did you get your wedges in place? How are you, uh, you know, how are you going to hyperextend that arm, like break their grips and whatnot? And uh, really make your wedges strong enough that you can apply the pressure. The the hipping in really shouldn't you shouldn't need a ton of follow through through room if you're doing the submission properly. Yeah, you know there's there are big advantages to the leaning back, and a lot of people do this in um, in particularly in arm bars, in leg locks, and in guillotine chokes. I see this a lot where people they grab onto the limb or the neck and they lean back like crazy, and they lean back like crazy. Um, in addition to the the problems you already described with it, that Matt, another problem with leaning back is that. Um, Number one, it disengages your core, which means that you're no longer using your core muscles to apply pressure. If you recall from earlier episodes, we talked about how when you're applying a submission, you want to use overwhelming force. You want to use every part of your body, especially your core, to engage. And and that's even in in submissions where it may not be obvious. Like when you're you're guillotine choking a guy, the power actually comes from your core. You want to like compress and squeeze into the guy and tighten up. That's how you finish a guillotine. It's not by grabbing onto his head and leaning back as far as you can. That's how you take the wedge off the back of his head and his head pops up. Yeah. And the other the other problem, too, with leaning back, 
Um, if you recall, again, from earlier episodes, we talked about the power of limb coiling, keeping your li- keeping your body tight like a ball. is kind of like a spring, right? When you got a spring and you compress it really, really small, there's a lot of potential energy there that can explode at any time. Um, the way I like to think of it is like a snake. You know, like a snake, is co- it coils itself when it's ready to strike and it can move fast. It doesn't, co- it doesn't like lie down flat on the ground because then it can't do anything. It coils because it's loaded like a spring and it can generate force. If you don't load like a spring like that, it impacts your ability to use your core to generate force. Additionally, if your limbs aren't coiled, it gives your opponent a way to break your structure, right? Like if I, if I, when I lean back, my elbows and my knees are no longer connected to my tummy, right? I've opened myself up and that gives my opponent the ability to start isolating things and escaping as well. So not only does it kill the pressure to do that lean back, but it also makes it easier for your opponent to escape to escape because now they can start like messing with your arms and your legs. Right. You see this a lot, like a perfect example is a leg lock. If you dive for a leg lock on me and instead of applying proper control, you just lean back like crazy. What you've effectively done, number one, you're not using any actual braking power, but number two, you've cut your own body in half. Now your two legs are right in front of me and the rest of your body is not engaged. So I can start attacking your legs uh, and I may even be able to finish you from there, right? So it is so important to stay coiled and stay tight all the time, especially when you're doing a submission where a lot of people, you know, the, the kind of the common reaction is to lean back. You really never want to do that. Yeah, and and this might not be uh, so much of a finishing detail, but strategically, when I'm going for a submission, let's say it's an arm bar, or let's say it's a uh, like a heel hook from the 411, the control leading to that, I want to control the free leg or the free arm. So, you know, like I said, this isn't really a finishing detail, but when I'm in the arm bar position, like I have, I actually think it is. I've, I've realized recently, I think it is a finishing detail. It helps break the grips for mm-hmm. sure. Right? Like if someone's in the arm bar, I have my arm wrapped around the arm that I want to attack. My, my legs are strong wedges around whatever portion of my opponent's upper body that I can collecting the far arm and pulling it tight, essentially making your opponent be in a straight jacket position mm-hmm. really reduces their alignment. So now they're crushed inside this box and they can't move side to side. So withdrawing their arm is very difficult. This is just a really a stronger example of wedging. And, and when I'm in the 411, if I don't control the free leg with my arms, um, my opponent is going to be able to spin and move and get into base and do all these things. Whereas I can isolate them inside the inside Senkaku by controlling the, the free leg with my arm. And then my legs are wedging around the leg that I want to attack. You know, this is a callback to the last episode we did on dominant angles, where we talked about how, hey, it's, it's great to arm drag someone. It's great to leg drag someone. But it's not just about controlling the lever that you're grabbing onto. It's about applying a wedge on the other side as well. And it's the same with like an arm bar, right? It's wonderful if I can grab someone's arm and I can attack it. But if I cannot put some sort of wedge on the far side, then they can just extract that lever. Um, I've, I've found the same principle to be true recently, as you mentioned, where when you're arm barring someone, I find these days for me to have success, it's less about what I do to the arm I'm grabbing and more about controlling the far arm and making sure because if I can put a wedge behind their far arm, they can't move. 
Whereas if I'm just grabbing their near arm, they might be able to bridge, they can extract the arm. And it's the same thing with leg locks, right? If I dive into like standard ashy and I've got standard ashy on someone, I can be doing everything right. But the fact that that far leg is still free allows my opponent a lot of mobility and he can do a lot to compensate for the fact that I'm controlling that one leg. But as soon as you grab that other leg and start, even and especially if you can start wedging in that other leg, now Uki can't move. And that completely changes the, the situation, right? It means that I actually have full control over the position rather than partial control. I'm starting to think it's so important that when you control one lever, you've got to be controlling something on the opposite side. I mean, I don't know exactly. if that's universal, but it's a, it's a pattern I've seen a lot in my recent training sessions. It's definitely manifesting a lot for me. Um, I'm finding that if I'm just going to attack one limb uh, and I get a submission, I either... Uh, some, someone I'm going against either, you know, maybe not the highest level or I'm doing, I'm, I, I just caught a submission, you know, and I, and I'd rather have a submission. I'd rather be able to do a submission slow mm-hmm. so that I know that I have full control. And that is something that, um, that I try and do when I'm training is I try and do things slow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there is a time when you're practicing for competition that you got to dial things up and go faster. But if you can do things slow, you can do them fast generally. Yeah. And it demonstrates a, a deeper understanding of control, which is, I think, more important. So maybe we should go on and talk about some rotational submissions. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that. This is something that, um, yeah, I mean, from my experience, I found actually that rotational control is powerful even in the context of linear submissions, right? There, there are very few linear submissions like an armbar or a knee bar that you cannot actually improve upon by adding a little bit of rotational control too. But then there are submissions that are completely rotational, like the, the probably the most obvious example being a Kimura, right? Kimura, yeah, Kimura or a heel hook or mm-hmm. toe hold. Um, these, these moves are all moves, if you'll notice, like... I, I used to think of these moves as a two-on-one, usually creating like a figure four, right? Like a Kimura is going to be a figure four. But also, these moves involve your legs being involved as well. So whether your legs are going to be isolating that shoulder that you're attacking in the Kimura, wrapping your legs around your opponent, or if you're basing on the ground off those legs when you're on top position finishing the Kimura, or if you're in the 411 uh, or an outside Ashi finishing a heel hook, your legs also need to create wedges or get into base as well. But essentially it's a, um, you know, you want to create as much torque as you can. So let's maybe just talk in terms of a Kimura for, for now. Um, I'd like to create an open elbow by pulling my opponent's elbow away from their body. Uh, do, doing this creates so much more control because uh, as, we, as we discussed earlier, anytime my opponent's elbow leaves their body, they become exposed with the open elbow. And definitely check out Ryan Hall's open elbow series. It's amazing. Um, so when I'm doing the Kimura, I'm not just focused on how am I going to put the guy's hand behind his head. In fact, if I focus on just pulling his hand behind his head, he's actually going to posture up and rip his arm up. Yeah. What I need to do is create a wedge behind his shoulder by usually... If I have the Kimura locked up, the arm that's going uh, around the back through the armpit needs to be tight to my body. Mm-hmm. What that's going to do is create a wedge on their shoulder, and it's going to improve my structure with that elbow by pinning it to my ribs. I'm and all- it allows you to engage your core, right? Otherwise, you're just pulling with your arms, but and that is not strong. And that's this is right. why most people fail on the Kimura. As soon as you pull your hand 
pull your hands in and wrap your own core around Uki's arm, now you can engage your core. Exactly. Great point. Like you, you don't want to do these moves with your, with your limbs guys. I mean, even though it looks like it and essentially, yes, you are using your limbs to create control. It's your body that does the majority of the horsepower. And that's always important to think about. So as now, if I have the, the Kimura and I have the arm, uh, I'm pulling my elbow to my body and now I can start pulling their elbow away from their body using like a shrugging type movement. Uh, I'm going to create distance between their elbow and their body and get way more control and i'm going to be able to now bring the uh the hand close to the head it's it's not just like if anyone out there plays the kimura system like the kimura trap that leads to the back and whatnot you'll know that you have to create that wedge on the end of the lever which is the shoulder Mm -hmm. as well as have the wrist the two-on-one on on the on the wrist Mm -hmm. right and and another thing when you're doing the kimura is you can always find extra leverage using your wrists. So if you think about your arms, they're levers to your shoulder, right? But your hand is also a lever. So if you, what I use commonly when I'm using the Kimura control is uh, I use the quote monkey grip where I put my thumb, I take my thumbs out of the equation. I'm no longer grabbing my opponent's wrist with the C grip, but I take my thumb out and now I have like essentially uh, two monkey grips, one on my opponent's wrist, one on my own. If I have this position and I roll my wrists down as if I'm revving down a motorcycle, I get tremendous torque on the shoulder. And this is kind of a hidden gem in the Kimura system. If you don't do this, if you do the Kimura grabbing just the wrist... You're using your wrists as a wedge almost against his hand, right? Yeah, exactly. Like I I do use the C-grip to isolate my opponent's wrist. But when I go to finish and when I really want to apply Kimura control, I switch to the no thumb grip. And that allows me to use my sh- my wrists as um, allows me to use my wrist to to torque up the Kimura a lot more. I get a lot more rotation that way, and the, it's actually really shocking how much more power you get. So if you if you don't play with that, definitely try that next time you get a Kimura. Roll your wrists forward, and um, and yeah, just just a lot of the time as well as I will be extending my arms rather than trying to pull my arms close to my body when I have the Kimura control. Got it. So, something maybe you could elaborate on that I thought was really interesting. You said that when you're playing the Kimura game, you can always create more pressure by putting a wedge against your opponent's shoulder. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about what you meant by that? So yeah, like if, if I'm in a crucifix position and I have the Kimura control around the back, like the T-shape with my opponent, um, if, if my if the arm that's over in front of my, my opponent's chest is, is open, that's going to actually leave a lever that my opponent can exploit. And essentially once they push that lever, uh, my Kimura will start to fall apart. And when you say open, you mean like your elbow is exposed? Is that what you're talking about? That's right. If they can create space between my, my elbow and their shoulder. So, I mean, it is a little bit hard to illustrate through audio, but when you have the Kimura control, you should have, uh, the arm that's grabbing your opponent's wrist that same elbow should be tight tethered like, to their shoulder. Like pinched into his armpit? Pin, uh, n- n- it, sometimes when I finish the Kimura, yes, but more so just connected and there's no space underneath that can be exploited. Um, I mean, you really do have to spend some time under someone who knows the Kimura trap to, to have all the details and to have all the control. But essentially what you need is you need that two-on-one. You need to control the end of the lever. You need to have the other arm coming underneath and threading through into your and connecting with your own hand. And you need to have the arm that's <laughs> getting confusing. You need to have your arm that's grabbing your opponent's wrist 
uh, applied as a wedge against your opponent's shoulder to immobilize their shoulder. It, it actually makes quite a bit of sense. Uh, I think that, I mean, I know it, it does get tricky to describe this in words, but I think I actually understand quite clearly what you're saying. So what, what you're saying is like, hey, it's, when you got the Kimura, it's not just about having a figure four on his arm. You're basically trying to pull that arm away from his body. You don't want his arm connected to his body. You want it to be out floating around freely. And you are using your own arms, probably particularly your elbows as a wedge so that he can't pull that arm back, right? You want that arm to be as far away from his body as possible. That's right. And and if you, if you look in positions like, um, like the, like a top side Kimura, when I Kimura my opponent, what the shoulder naturally wants to do, just like we discussed in the armbar earlier, is it wants to rise mm -hmm. to alleviate the pressure that's on the shoulder. So if I can apply pressure on top of the shoulder, it's just like what we discussed with the armbar earlier, immobilizing the shoulder that will have a dramatic effect on the pressure being applied to the joint and the pressure will now no longer be able to bleed out when the shoulder gets elevated. Got it. Yeah. And, and thank you for this, because this is something that you actually taught me a few years ago, which I really appreciate. Uh, when I used to try to apply the Kimura, I, like a lot of people, I get the figure four grip and I'd start trying to turn his arm behind his shoulder. And it's like, well, I can't do it. And uh, it was only when you showed me that I realized the figure four grip is, is great, but that's just the first step. You then have to isolate his arm. You have to pull it away from his body. That's right. Th this in itself is actually a mental model, which is that you always want to isolate your, your targets. You want to, you never want to try to attack a guy's limb while it is strong and connected to his body or to another limb. Um, you always want to have his limbs free floating to the greatest extent possible, right? Your opponent's limbs are weak when they're not able to connect to anything else. So this, this is a true principle in basically any submission and even in a, in a lot of positional improvements as well. If you can pull your opponent's limbs away from the core, this is like the opposite of limb coiling, which we talked about earlier. You want to put your limbs close to your core you want to prevent your opponent from doing that. And it is always beneficial if you can pull your opponent's limbs very far away from the rest of his body. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, the, I mean, uh, the, the Kimura is such a strong tool to use. Definitely, if, if, <laughs> if you don't use the Kimura as a system and not just a submission, you're, you're denying yeah. yourself of one of the main control schemes in, in the Nogi system. I mean, it's, it leads to the back. It leads to guard passing. It is such an all-purpose tool. Uh, you definitely have to to start incorporating the Kimura as a, yeah. as a submission. You know, the, the Kimura is a great example of what we've talked about a little bit earlier, which is that there really is no such thing as a submission. Like a submission is just a particular type of position <laughs> where a particular type of position where you have employed enough breakage of alignment that your opponent has to give up. Almost any submission can be thought of as a position and can be used for positional advancement. The Kimura is a very obvious situation because even if you can't finish the Kimura, you can use the Kimura to get from like bottom guard all the way to your opponent's back just by applying leverage. You, But it's not just the Kimura. You can do that with arm bars. You can do that with triangles. I do that with omoplatas a lot where yep. I use omoplatas not so much to, I mean, hey, I'll finish the guy if I can, but really what I'm doing is I'm using that leverage for position advancement. And it's so important to think of submissions as just a particular type of position that you can flow into and out of. Yeah. And just because you have a figure four grip on your opponent's arm doesn't mean you have broken their alignment. Yeah. So that's, you know, aesthetically, it looks like a Kimura, but this is another one of those position versus alignment situations that we talked about before. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the last type of joint lock to talk about would be a compression. And this, this should be quick. 
Um, there's not a lot of compression joint locks out of there. Uh, uh, you know, uh, there is, of course, the slicers. There's the bicep slicer and the calf slicer. My two cents on these moves, um, you know, we all know about the, the, the calf slicer when my opponent is facing away from me and they're essentially trying to scramble to get away and I've locked my legs and I'm coming up almost like I'm about to take their back and they're in the sprinter's stance. So I'll tell you why I don't like this type of a slicer and then I'll tell you what type of slicer I do like and why I like that one better. So here goes. If I have a calf slicer on someone and they turn away and they're in the sprinter's escape and I'm trying to cling to their back almost like a backpack and I've got their leg folded up. I think you know what I'm talking about. This type of move, I've seen two people hurt their knees very badly trying to apply this move. And here's why. When you're trying to apply this move, your knee is essentially flared out in an unnatural position. You've you're, broken your own alignment to you, apply the submission. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. Like, like the strong point of this submission if you if you imagine coming up on top of someone's back and you've got them in the slicer your knee your your shin is essentially horizontal it's sideways so when you hip into that you're putting all that pressure into the outside of your knee okay and that that's a really good way to hurt your knee um i've seen guys go for the submission I, one guy in particular, one of my close training partners, 260 pounds, he applied this to a 150 pounder, a small man. And the guy, what did the guy do? Spun, broke his leg. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't spin, although that is dangerous too. But all he did was he just, he was in stance because he was in a sprinter stance. So he's in alignment. He had base and he kicked his leg straight. So at the combination of, of my friend applying this slicer uh, sideways to his knee and the other guy being in base and being able to just kick his leg straight caused this guy to pop his knee. Mm-hmm. So the guy who was attacking actually got hurt. And I've seen this happen twice. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the reason I don't like this type of a submission is because you're applying it to someone who's in base. So that's really going to be uh, in the hierarchy of things, we always try and break alignment. I would never try and uh, bear and bolo someone who's, uh, you know, his butt's not on the ground. I might be able to spin underneath them, but it's going to be really hard to actually land a bear and bolo on someone with base. Just like it's really hard to heel hook someone with base. Um, now, a, a slicer that I like is one from the truck. So if I have my opponent in the truck and I'm able to isolate the the leg that I'm entangling and I can apply a slicer in that fashion, I find that effective and quite safe. Why? Your because opponent's not in base. My opponent's not in base. They're on their back. Their feet are up in the air. They cannot drive and create powerful explosive movements. Mm-hmm. So I can totally see that one working, whereas the other one is I steer clear of that. I mean, there's really no reason to do that when I can just abandon it and try and get to my opponent's back from that position. Yeah, and that's a good example of what you talked about earlier where, you know, there's a difference between having a a submission and being in a position that looks like a submission. Um, If you don't actually have the guy's alignment broken, you're not in a submission. You know, a a good example there, like you said, is where you've technically got a slicer in terms of, yeah, your body is positioned in a way that it looks like a slicer, but if your opponent is on top of you and has their base, they're actually the ones with the power in that situation. So, and, they're, and they're mobile. Yeah, and they're mobile. So you're actually the one who might be in more danger. I generally find that, you know, in moves like this, if your elbows or your knees are flared out at an awkward angle, you're probably not in a position of power, regardless of what's going on. You've I, I try to always avoid situations where my elbows are, or my knees are flared out because you're effectively breaking your own structure when you do that. 
number one, you have no power. Uh, and number two, if your opponent moves the wrong way, they can put tremendous pressure on your joints and, and cause breaking damage to you. So that's kind of something to always be cognizant of is just make sure that even if you think you're on the offensive, make sure your elbows and your knees are never flared out at awkward angles. Yep. And, and, and when we talk about like risk versus reward, uh, generally I never go for submissions that put me at risk. It's Mm -hmm. just, there's no point for me to go for that submission when I can now transition to my opponent's back and create some really good opportunities for finishing. Got it. Got it. So just to kind of recap, we talked about a lot of mental models today. The, The big topic today was finishing mechanics. We can break those down into two main categories. You've got choking mechanics and you've got breaking mechanics, which are for joints. When it comes to choking mechanics, um, really the best way to think of, of blood chokes in particular is to kind of imagine a triangle around your opponent's head. You want to wedge in all directions there, on all sides of the triangle. You want to have wedges on both carotid arteries, and the power you get comes from pushing the wedge down on the back of the neck. That also breaks the posture, which is a critical mistake that a lot of people make when they're applying a submission, uh, especially a choke, is they don't break their opponent's posture, and then they're surprised that the submission doesn't work. When we talk about breaking mechanics, um, Matt, I believe you said you kind of broke these down into three different types of locks. You've got linear, like the standard armbar. You've got rotational, like the Kimura. And you've got compression locks, like a slicer, right? And the specific rules for these vary, but generally what you want to do is you want to have, you know, you you probably have a lever that you're attacking in most cases. And one of the ways that you control that lever is through the systematic application of wedges to isolate that lever and to apply pressure to that lever. So other related mental models we talked about here, um, we talked about the, the principle of committed techniques. The idea being that if you've got multiple options available that all yield the same result, you probably want to favor the option that is going to put you in a better position at the end of the day, right? Whether, rather than a sacrifice option where you could lose the position if something doesn't go the way that you expect. We talked about rotational control um, and a a subset of that being the ratchet effect. So the idea being that you can almost always create power by adding rotation, uh, which is going to further break structure. The way that most people think about this is in the context of a Kimura, but even with an arm bar or a knee bar, or even with like a, a, a guillotine choke, you can apply significantly more powerful or power if you add a little bit of rotation to it. We talked about uh, overwhelming force, something we talked about earlier, that which is that we want to not just pull with our arms and legs, but we want to use all of our weapons, particularly our core, when we attack a submission. We talked about limb coiling again. So the idea that we want to keep our, our elbows, knees, and our neck tight. We want to be like a dead spider. We don't want to let our opponent pull any of our limbs free. And then on the converse of that, we talked about how when you want to finish, when you want to finish your opponent, that's what you want to do to them. You want to isolate a single target. You don't want to try to finish a, a, a finish a submission on a limb that is still tight to your opponent's core. You need to focus on pulling that limb free and isolating it and then systematically applying wedges so that your opponent cannot get that limb back. And so that when you apply pressure to that limb, the pressure, the opponent has nowhere to go and the pressure cannot bleed to a different joint. That's right. And if it fails that you can recover to hopefully uh, a position of equal or better value. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, that's a pretty in-depth discussion. Uh, I think Matt, maybe we could do some questions. Sure. It's letter time. (laughs) So one thing that that came up that someone mentioned, they wanted to talk a little bit about hygiene. Um, This is a, a big topic. It's actually probably a series of topics, but it's something that is always a sensitive point in jiu-jitsu. And that is basically what are 
you know, what what should you do in jujitsu to to have good hygiene? How what are what are the expectations on a training partner in terms of hygiene? And Matt, as a gym owner, I'm sure you have thoughts on this. Yes, we've all encountered people that are just, you know, either they come into the gym, most people are fine, but some people come into the gym after work or they just, you know, they were never really taught the proper ways to carry themselves uh, in public or in a in a, a setting where we're actually lying on top of each other, choking each other out. So mm-hmm. uh, the, one of the ways I like to look at it is is go to jujitsu almost as if you're going to a date, meaning that you are clean, your nails are trimmed, uh, there's no odors or anything, and of course your uniform, whether it's gi or no gi, is clean. That is one of the biggest things. You have to wash your gi, and it has to be every class. Uh, if you think that your gi is not dirty enough to merit washing for the next class, wash it anyways. <laughs> Another thing is the whole don't wash your belt thing. Uh, if you believe that you are an idiot, I'm not saying, I'm not saying wash your belt every class because I don't do that, but I do wash my belt maybe once a week or one, at least once every two weeks, because your belt is a piece of cloth, just like anything. It's going to carry bacteria. Yeah. I wash my belt every class. Um, I am not one of the believers that my belt has some sort of magical power in it that gives me skill. Um, it's just a cheap piece of fabric. It was imported, I think, from Pakistan. I really could not care less about my belt. It can go in the wash. It's going to, I mean, hey, it might shrink a bit, but honestly, this should be a big factor of how you buy your geese. Oh, what I what I like to do is I buy geese with a bit of room knowing they're probably going to shrink because I wash and dry the heck out of my geese. I want them to be super clean. Another thing to understand is that just because you put your geese through the wash, that doesn't mean it's actually as clean as it should be. Um, a, a lot of people always bring this up with me and they say, man, you know, I want, I wash my gi every class, but after a month or two, it still winds up smelling. Um, the reason why that is the case is because bacteria is very, very persistent. My suggestion here is that, um, once in a while you should wash your gi with an antimicrobial agent. Um, this is a fancy way of saying something that breaks down, um, bacteria, basically breaks down bacteria so that it can't survive. Cheapest way to do this is to buy some vinegar and put a little bit of it in your in your wash when you do your uh, when you do your laundry. You don't need to buy some big fancy expensive antimicrobial agent. Just use a bit of vinegar. And um, my first concern when I heard about this was: Is this going to make you smell like fish and chips? The answer is no. It actually doesn't make you smell like fish and <laughs> chips. And uh, believe it or not, this is not an old wives' tale. I looked. You know, when people kept telling me at the beginning, wash your ghee with vinegar, I thought this was some crazy folk wisdom that couldn't be true. But it turns out it actually is. Um, vinegar has antimicrobial properties which break down bacteria and because it's really really cheap and it doesn't have any dye in it it's a really good candidate for something that you can throw in your laundry if you're doing an activity like jujitsu because it really it really makes a difference and is going to prevent that problem where after a few months your ghee starts to smell regardless of how many times you wash it yeah great points and of course like try and shower beforehand if you can uh definitely after which will prevent uh, well, limit. We won't say prevent because there are accidents do happen, but it'll limit uh, staph infections and ringworm. And of course, if you do have any weird spots on your body, uh, get them checked out as soon as possible, especially if they look like a circle, which is definitely going to be something like ringworm. Um, beginners, I notice, tend to uh, not be so sure about what that is. They might not even have ever heard of ringworm or staph infections. Um, it's important that beginners know that if they have any weird spots or rashes or, you know, God forbid, oozing, pussing sores, 
You've got to get that checked out because that is highly contagious and you can't be bringing that in the mat. And if it means you got to sit out a week or two or more, you, you have to. Yeah, this is something that cannot be driven home hard enough. This is deeply important and everyone needs to understand this. This this is literally a life and death matter. Um, a lot of people, especially newbies who don't really understand combat sports, they try to tough it out. Like they see something weird on their body and they think, oh, if it becomes a big deal, I'll, I'll go to the doctor. That is not what you need to do. You need to go to the doctor right away if after grappling, you see something weird up on your body, even if it just looks like a rash that you can't explain or that wasn't there before. The reason this is particularly important is because, first of all, in a grappling context, these things are going to be incredibly contagious, right? You know, you're touching people very directly. There's fluid exchange. These things are going to transfer from one person to another. But additionally, you can die from this stuff and you can die very fast. Um, staph, in particular, um, MRSA, the me the uh, medically resistant variant of staph is deadly and it can kill you within a matter of hours, right? Like there, there are p stories of people who have had staph and at first it doesn't look like anything. And then eight hours later, like half of their limb has been eaten and they're in a, a life and death situation in the hospital. Also bear in mind that jujitsu is very popular amongst um, medical professionals like paramedics, um, EMTs, doctors, police officers. These are people who work with people in high risk settings. So when you transfer something gnarly to them, you are putting people with compromised immune systems at risk because they could be passing that on to the people they train with. So if you have something like that, if you, even if it's just a weird mark that you can't explain, always get it looked at. This is not just a matter of being nice to your training partners. This is literally a life and death situation. And you must always think about this as it's not a shameful thing. Mm -hmm. uh, some people are too embarrassed to come forward and tell their instructor. And so what they do is they cover up and they think they can keep training uh, because they're deeply embarrassed. Guys, it's not embarrassing to get staff or ringworm. Be honest with your instructor. Tell them what's going on and say, I need to take some time off. Mm -hmm. If your instructor is uh, reasonable and understanding, hopefully they'll pause your membership and you won't lose any time and you can come back when you're healed. But you cannot be running anyone the risk because what is shameful and embarrassing is actually getting caught training with it. Uh, people will remember that. And that is something you don't want to live with. And like Steve said, it's life or death. Yeah, absolutely. Um, staph and, and other transmittable diseases like this are not a joke. They need to be taken very, very seriously on the mats. And um, additionally, as Matt said, if you do realize you have staff, um, you owe it to your team to tell them. You should tell your instructor so that they can relay that to members of the team so that they know that they've been exposed. Um, this is also important for other um, other diseases. You know, if, if, for example, you get exposed to something like mumps, you know, or some other weird disease, make sure that your instructor knows so that they can tell everyone else on their team. This is critical. Critical because some of the people that you train with might spend a lot of their time working with the elderly or children or um, people in the hospital. If these people are in contact with people who have compromised immune systems, it's very important that they know if they've been exposed to something so that they can take preventative action right away. Yeah. And, and the best way to deal with this is to always shower uh, right after class, if possible. Don't go home and marinate on the couch for three hours and then, oh, I'm going to go in or I'll shower the next day is one of the scariest things ever. Okay. You're, yeah. Shower immediately. Shower immediately. Try to use a, an antibacterial like soap if you can. Like I use head and shoulders. It usually kills everything. Um, and, uh, 
another great thing to just mention real quick is to, if you're going to a gym and you're brand new, just assume that every time you step off the mats, you need footwear. Yeah. So whether that's going to be uh, sandals or whatever, especially in the washroom, uh, don't be walking around barefoot. You will get called on it. A lot of gyms have signs or whatever, but some don't. So definitely try and have footwear off the mats. And uh, you do not want to be transferring bacteria onto the mats where people's faces are going to be smushed against. Yeah, you, you brought up a good point. Um, you know, we talked about disinfecting your clothing with an antimicrobial agent. You also want to disinfect yourself. Um, you can get antimicrobial soap and shampoo. I believe Head & Shoulders has antimicrobial properties. I think that's how it kills dandruff, but I'm not totally sure on that. So I'd suggest you look it up before you believe me on this. Yeah. But I, I, that's what, you know, you can wash with antimicrobial soap and shampoo, and that's always a good idea as well. I'd highly recommend it. Just, uh, um, just imagine you're trying to impress a really hot date and you're going to show them how clean you're going to be. That's yeah. what you want to do when you go into the jujitsu school is you, you want to make sure that no one has problems with the way that you smell or, uh, you know, any other issues like that, that could lead to serious infections. Yeah. And on one other thing on the topic of hygiene, um, Although it is not technically illegal to do in jiu-jitsu, I do not suggest farting on your opponent's face as an <laughs> escape or submission. Um, I understand it is devastating. I have had it happen to me. I suggest you try to avoid that if you possibly can. <laughs> Accidents do happen. <laughs> okay, well, I, I think that's a pretty comprehensive discussion. Um, thanks again, Matt. Thanks to everyone thanks, listening. Yeah. And we will talk to you next time. All right. Thanks, guys.